Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Mikhail Gorbachev's dreams of holding the Soviet Union together may have received a death blow today. The Union's three Slavic republics announced they are forming a separate Commonwealth of Independent States. Russia, the Ukraine, and Belarusia control much of the Soviet Union's economic power, enough to challenge the rapidly fading strength of Gorbachev's central government. The red flag came down over the Kremlin tonight as President Gorbachev resigned and brought to an end seven decades of communist rule in the Soviet Union. For the Western world, the fall of the Soviet Union was met with relief and excitement. The Cold War had officially come to an end, and it seemed that so had the existential threat of global nuclear war. Throughout the Cold War, the strategic relationship between the United States and Soviet Union was defined by mutually assured destruction an acronym of MAD. Each side had tens of thousands of nuclear weapons that could annihilate the other side, and the whole world, at any point. This, in theory, deterred each side from attacking the other. In earlier podcasts, we discussed the times where, despite the MAD doctrine, nuclear war still almost broke out between the countries. In all of those cases, it was a good bit of luck that saved the day. But in the immediate aftermath of the end of the Cold War, Despite what people may have thought, new nuclear threats immediately emerged. The Soviet Union's nuclear weapons were dispersed not just in Russia, but in three other countries as well. Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. The situation was so chaotic that the new Ukrainian president remarked, quote, We don't know what we have. Financially and politically strapped, these countries needed major assistance removing these nuclear weapons. Even more concerning... There were widespread reports that guards at former Soviet nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons bases, where the weapons were still located, weren't being compensated, and the security was lax, at best. Without any payment, would guards now be vulnerable to bribes from rogue nations or terrorist groups? Without strict security, would rogue nations or terrorist groups be able to steal the most dangerous weapons humanity has ever seen? These questions caused two U.S. senators, one a Democrat from Georgia, the other a Republican from Indiana, to push for legislation to ensure that everyone's worst nightmare never happened. We spoke to both of those senators, and coming up, we'll hear about one of the greatest examples of American leadership the world has ever seen. This is Nukes of Hazard, a podcast from the Center for Arms Control and Nonproliferation in Washington, D.C. I'm James McKeon, a policy analyst here at the Center. Today, we're talking about how the world avoided catastrophe assisting former Soviet states with the securing and removal of thousands of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. And the story about how this all came about might as well be out of a movie. I can remember vividly... A Russian lady looked at me directly in the eye and said, you folks are in a lot of trouble. And I said, what do you mean? Uh, she said, well, she said, unfortunately, a lot of our troops are deserting their positions. Many of the people who are perhaps guarding the nuclear weapons that have been aimed at you in the United States all these years, this means that uh, they, those weapons could be fired by somebody else or accidents could occur. And she said, you're going to need a lot of your money. And that was certainly true. The, the Soviet Union at that time was bankrupt. That's the reason the guards were not being paid. 
That's former U.S. Senator Richard Lugar, a Republican from Indiana who served in the world's most deliberative body for 36 years. These days, he's the president and chairman of the Lugar Center, which provides a forum for experts to discuss potential solutions for the world's foremost national security and foreign policy challenges. We learned that the Soviet Union was disintegrating, moving toward a very dangerous uh, situation. And uh, as a result, uh, when 1991 came and uh, there was a revolt in Russia, and Sam Nunn was there at that time, uh, when he came back, uh, we visited promptly about this. That revolt he's talking about was an attempted coup against Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev. Hardline members of the Communist Party, horrified by Mr. Gorbachev's political and economic reforms, attempted to take over the Soviet government. Though the coup failed in two days, the entire situation deeply destabilized the country. The Sam Nunn he mentioned is former U.S. Senator Sam Nunn, a Democrat from Georgia who served for 24 years in the chamber. Today, he's the co-chairman of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, an organization that works to curb and prevent the use of weapons of mass destruction. At the time of the coup, Senator Nunn was in Budapest, Hungary, for a major conference with officials from the United States, Europe, and Soviet Union. When the coup ended, he spoke to a Soviet official about how or if he could travel to the Soviet Union. Here's how he tells the story. I told him I had no visa, and he said, I'll have the Russian ambassador come to see you in the next 15 minutes. And I said to him, Andre, uh, no way that your bureaucracy can get me a visa in the next 15 minutes. And he said, uh, watch us. And he kept saying Russia. So that's when I knew that we really were about to see a sea change. He never said the word Soviet Union uh, to me in that whole conversation. So Senator Nunn was able to get to the Soviet Union and speak with a number of officials there. He then met with President Gorbachev and asked him, Mr. President, did you always have control of your nuclear command and control um, of your weapons? And he would not answer that question. So putting all that together and talking to an awful lot of the Russian people and the military leaders, uh, I came to the conclusion that we were about to see the breakup of the Soviet Union and it was going to be the largest reservoir of um, and depository of nuclear, chemical, biological weapons in human history with an empire breaking up across a number of time zones. So that was the origin of the idea I had to come back and introduce what later became known as the non-Luger legislation. That non-Luger legislation, or cooperative threat reduction, passed the House and Senate and was then signed into law by President George H.W. Bush. But even at the time when the risks of doing nothing were so readily apparent, there were some who felt that the legislation was essentially welfare for Russia. There was great skepticism still in the Senate among some senators that said we should not have given a dime to the Russians. They didn't deserve a dime. Uh, And likewise in the Bush administration. Those skeptics, however, were by any objective standard proven very wrong by the successes of the program. The Nunn-Luger Offer Threat Reduction Program was probably the greatest prevention program ever established. It succeeded in preventing catastrophe. And of course, the only metric really is what didn't happen. But the numbers of weapons that were destroyed or secured, that didn't fall into the hands of terrorists over a period of more than two decades, 
is really extraordinary. That's Andrew Weber, a former Pentagon official who played a pivotal role in actually implementing cooperative threat reduction in its early phases. Later, from 2009 to 2014, he served as the Assistant Secretary of Defense for nuclear, chemical, and biological defense programs. And the numbers of weapons destroyed or secured that he mentioned, well, his use of the word extraordinary may be an understatement. Initially, there was an agreement called the Lisbon Protocol, where all parties agreed that the nuclear weapons would either be destroyed or transferred to Russia. But Nunn-Lugar actually made it happen. Because of the program, more than 7,600 nuclear warheads were deactivated, 900 intercontinental ballistic missiles were destroyed, 700 submarine-launched ballistic missiles were demolished, and the numbers just go on and on and on. But here's the most important thing. Today, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, and Belarus are nuclear weapons-free because of the program. That's Dr. Sarah Kuchis-Fahani, our new senior policy analyst, who is also the senior program coordinator of the Fissile Materials Working Group or FMWG, an international consortium of experts that works to reduce global stocks of dangerous nuclear materials that could be used for nuclear weapons. Sarah is an expert on cooperative threat reduction and has even written a book about it called Politics and the Bomb. The accomplishments of the Nunn-Luger program can't be overstated, and the stories within those accomplishments are fascinating, to say the least. Yesterday, the Department of Defense and the Department of Energy completed a high-priority, extremely sensitive mission, which we call Project Sapphire, intended to help stem the spread of nuclear weapons and material. We have just transferred approximately 600 kilograms of weapons-grade, highly enriched uranium out of Kazakhstan at the request of the government of Kazakhstan and delivered the material to the Department of Energy's Y-12 plant in Oak Ridge in Tennessee for safe and secure storage. That's former Secretary of Defense William Perry announcing the Project Sapphire mission. By the way, 600 kilograms of highly enriched uranium is enough to fuel two dozen nuclear weapons or more. A team of about 30 worked six days per week for 12-hour shifts for nearly a month to repackage and ultimately transport the uranium halfway across the world. The two C-5 cargo planes that transported the material flew straight through with three refuelings mid-air along the way. A declassified government document noted that, at least at the time, these were the longest C-5 flights in history. And then there were other stories, like this one from Senator Luger, recounting the volume of weapons they were dealing with. Uh, I was... um going to uh, uh, Sucha, southern, southeastern part of, of Russia, a very small village. But it was a very large, decrepit building that we entered. The reason we entered that building was that uh, it was ostensibly a warehouse for chemical weapons. Um, well, indeed, it was filled with chemical weapons. I went into that situation the uh, rows were very dim, but there were literally uh, row after row covering the, the better part of, seems to me, a half an acre of, of these chemical weapons just sitting on shelves, thousands of them. Andrew Weber remembered some horrifying scenes as well. My first visit to Stepnogorsk in Kazakhstan, which was just over the Russian border, 
It was a facility that was designed to produce and load onto weapons 300 metric tons of anthrax during a wartime mobilization period. And I remember staring down into a four-story high 5,000-gallon fermenter, which was one of 10 used to produce anthrax, and just thinking that the scale of this biological weapons facility could only be called evil. He even has memories with a junior senator from Illinois. I remember visiting with Senator Luger and a brand new young senator, Barack Obama, a public health laboratory in downtown Kiev, where the uh, director of the facility opened the freezer and handed me a small tray with vials of, of anthrax, of bacillus anthracis, and removing one and showing it to Senator Obama. I have a very memorable photograph of, of that moment. So there were so many incredible experiences, and it was such a privilege to have been involved in, in a program like this, which truly did make the world a safer place. As I was doing research for this episode, going through old papers I've read in the past about Nun Luger, I kept saying to myself, I can't even begin to imagine what the world would have looked like if this never happened. Senator Nunn put it best. We dodged a lot of bullets because you had a military that was demoralized. You had citizens that didn't have enough to eat. You had a lot of government employees, including the military, that weren't being paid. And you had all of these chemical uh, and nuclear weapons and materials that people would pay, particularly other countries, as well as um, perhaps terrorist groups would pay big, big money for. So getting control of those, um, in my view, has just has, uh, helped us dodge a number of disasters. It's not um, possible to prove this with uh, metrics, but intuitively everybody that's been involved and everybody who saw the weapons and the materials both chemical, biological, as well as nuclear, understands that um, we avoided a number of disasters. You probably won't be surprised to hear that today, the U.S. and Russia have reduced their cooperation on securing dangerous nuclear materials. In 2013, Russia notified the United States that it would not renew the Cooperative Threat Reduction Agreement after it expired. Moscow later announced that it was declining any American funding to improve security at sites containing weapons-usable nuclear material. Russian President Vladimir Putin also suspended another agreement that committed both countries to reducing their excess stocks of weapons-grade plutonium. Each side is continuing work on their own, but cooperative efforts are almost entirely gone. The thing is, it's not just Russia that is down on cooperation. Some policymakers here in Washington hold the view that working with Russia on nuclear security issues is not only unnecessary, but dangerous, a continuation of the welfare for Russia argument. Of course, the problem with this view is that a terrorist with nuclear material could use it anywhere. Moscow, New York, St. Petersburg, Chicago. Make no mistake, we have a lot of disagreements with Russia. But we have to find ways to work together on the security issues that affect us all. Nuclear security cooperation that could prevent a nuclear terror attack should be number one on that list. Former U.S. Senator Byron Dorgan, who serves on our National Advisory Board, explained it this way in an opinion piece for Defense One. Quote, 
it would take only one nuclear terror attack to radically alter our way of life. Should this happen, the public would wonder why alleged treaty violations, military differences, and geopolitical disagreements prevented action to avert catastrophe. If you enjoyed this episode of Nukes of Hazard, please consider giving us a rating on iTunes. And if you have any questions or comments, you can shoot us an email at podcast at armscontrolcenter.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at at nukes underscore of underscore hazard. Our Facebook page is www.facebook.com slash armscontrolcenter. Thanks so much for listening. We'll talk to you soon.